Well, should we just get started then? <laughs> yep, yep. Okay. Um, well, maybe you want to start by giving the listener a little bit of a background to your climbing life, I suppose. Okay, yeah. So, um, yeah, I've been climbing for 36 years. So I started climbing in 1984. Um, and luckily for me, it's it's kind of what I do for a living and I have done since leaving school. So the only job apart from some kind of um casual labor when i've been traveling has been rock climbing so at the present i for the last sort of seven or eight years i've been running a company called rock and sun and we run climbing holidays and courses all over the world um so i kind of obviously started out climbing trad in the uk um, sort of climbed up to E6 Trad on site um, and put up hundreds of routes uh, in various places around the world, uh, as far afield as Thailand and China and Australia, um, sort of up to uh, 8A sport climbs, um, and continue to um, be motivated to climb and put up new routes whenever I get the time and, and opportunity. Um, so yeah, I've got a very fairly varied sort of climbing kind of background and very well traveled and my main passion is uh is new routing. Yeah, you you're bolting a route uh, crag at the moment, right, in Spain, just a little crag. Yeah, but I, I I managed to get two done yesterday on my own when I and uh <laughs> <laughs> I probably should have been in the office but um I wasn't. So yeah, well, I I think since lockdown we've put up like 10 or 12 new routes. Just locally here, okay. and found a couple of found a couple of new crags as well, which I'm pretty excited about. So uh, it's kind of COVID secret crags, nice okay. and quiet, so we don't have to worry about social distancing for uh, oh, great. other users. So it should be good. Spain's good for that, isn't it? Just endless rock. Yeah, there is. It's amazing. I mean, our local crag is literally that's no with no roots on it, probably like a fifteen minute walk, maybe mm. maybe twenty minutes full approach from walking from the from the villa oh, right. sort of you can just see the top of it from the from the drive in to the villa and i've been looking yeah. at it for a while and when i had a look and it's like mm, pretty good oh great yeah um so yeah so that's my sort of you know obviously you know the sort of climbing background i mean i i i, I was born in bristol so i'm sort of southwest based climber really um and I'm the son of uh, sort of I'm first generation. So my parents came over from the Caribbean, uh, late 50s, early 60s, um, and um, got together and, and lived in, and started a family in Bristol. So I grew up in a very white working class um, housing estate, which is very unusual back then. Um, sort of, you know, most most sort of city council's housing policy in the 50s and 60s were pretty much to house um, immigrants in, in certain areas. So you create these, these kind of hubs of, of what we call inner city ethnic uh, areas. And part of that was definitely due to attitudes. Uh, I, I would, you know, resisting, resistant racist attitudes that a lot of people didn't want immigrants moving into their neighborhoods. And I guess those things still go on now. I mean, you see the, the reaction that people have with, with the Eastern Europeans 
influx and complaining about that. So obviously, you know, in fifties and sixties, when people are less informed, you know, the, the differences between people are more obvious when you bigger culturally between East Europe, Eastern Europe, say, and say um, India or um, the Caribbean or Africa. So of course, you can imagine the the, the resistance and the shock. I mean, you know, my parents would have had things much harder than me when they arrived here than the, the, the experiences I had to deal with growing up in, in the UK, um, in a white environment in the sort of, you know, I was born in 65, so sort of 60s and into the sort of the early 80s, um, my kind of upbringing youth um, had some fairly interesting experiences that at the time you kind of just deal with because that's your norm. You don't have anything else to reference. So it's only when you grow up and you travel, meet different people, and then you start to to reflect and have conversations, and you realize how different your upbringing was to other people's, and how that molds you as an individual. So, um, you know, my 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 family were the first black family in on the housing estate. Um, by the time I left school, there were probably only two or three black families on the whole estate of twenty odd thousand people. Um, so yeah, dealing with typical um, racist attitudes, which I think were just commonplace back then. Um, you would deal with racist abuse on a daily basis, yeah, um, and that becomes quite quite normal. Um, so, I mean, some examples of that would be, I guess, from an early age. I remember going to school and having to deal with being called names in the playground repeatedly on a, you know, it would happen several times in a day. You, you could end up, um, you know, in a fight or an argument with someone, but often a fight. Um, my mum and dad pretty much were, um, their advice to us was, you know, if someone hits you, hit them twice as hard. And it sounds really odd, kind of giving that advice to your child. But obviously, in in a hostile environment that we grew up in, which it kind of was really, you kind of take it for you, you take it in your stride and you deal with it. But looking back, it was kind of ridiculous that you had to deal with some of the things that we, you had to deal with. But that's just the way it was. I mean, um, I remember thinking, we were all realizing at some point that if I was gonna hit every child every other kid that called me a name that would take him a lot of time of the day fighting and also if you were going to hit the ones of the same size as you and smaller than you you also had to do the same with the bigger ones so at some point you just decided that you know what i'm going to kind of ignore as much as possible this unless someone makes it impossible for me to do that uh to to the point where i think i remember that we as a as a family, me and my brothers, we, we went to the join the boxing gym um, and learned to box, and that was just for the means of self defence. Like you knew you were going to get into fights, so you may as well learn how to fight properly. Um, otherwise, you'd become a victim of bullying, which is the whole point of what my parents' advice was. Is that in that situation, if you became a target, you would just get in alive. So it was best not to be one. Um, and and I also remember that. Um, I was 
I was okay at fighting. I was, it could, could handle myself reasonably well, but I hated it. And one of my, I think one of my first proper school fight I ever had was with um, a guy called Timothy Knowles. Mm-hmm. And he was, he, was, he was the toughest kid in the year. Um, and he was going to beat me up because he had to prove that he was the toughest kid in the year. So the usual thing, me outside the school gate, you know, big crowd around, you have the fight. And I remember getting him on the ground, kneeling on his arms and punching him in the face a few times, which is kind of what you have to do in order to win a fight, of course. That's the procedure. <laughs> and then, and then I, I, I got up and I ran away. I just, I, I just left him there on the floor and just ran off. And I remember running home from, um, from school and I was in tears. I was in tears at the, the thought of having to fight someone, having mm. to hit someone and not, want, not wanting to, not, not being in the slightest bit interested in doing him any harm other than he mm. wanted to beat me up, so I had to beat him up. Mm. And that's, that was kind of what it was like growing up um, in those days, really, I guess. Um, it's kind of so, brave you know, of your parents to go to such a white area of Bristol did they expect it to be that bad? You know, what, do you know what they, their thoughts were before they moved? Kind of interesting, I suppose. I'm not, I'm not sure that anyone coming over from the Caribbean in the late 50s really knew what to expect, really. Because from what I can gather, people were quite surprised that, that it wasn't a more welcoming society. Because obviously mm. my parents saw themselves as being British because they were. Mm. I mean, they 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 come they came from British colony. It was you know, Barbados and Antigua didn't get independence until decades after. Certainly, uh, a decade or so, maybe longer for Antigua after um, they moved to the UK. So they they came with um, uh, British passports, mm-hmm. and they were taught uh, British uh, in in a, in a British system. Um, I mean, parents remember they kept coming over and um, being surprised how, how poor the education system was here mm. compared to what it was in the Caribbean. They were mm. kind of shocked. Um, and the kind of hostile attitudes to, towards them by, by many was, I think, unexpected. Um, mm. Because obviously they, they were invited to come um, to the UK to work. Yeah. So... My parents tell um, a story of when they had um, the first Christmas or New Year's party um, at the house. And the neighbours, when the neighbours came round, it was usually sort of those those big events were normally at our place. You know, if you were going to have a a party at Christmas, New Year, it almost, I don't remember going to a party in anyone else's house. um, Maybe one Why was that? Why was it always at your house? Because I think culturally, it's very, it's, it's a natural, um, it's much more natural to have an open door policy. If you're Caribbean, that's, that's part of our culture. It's a, it's a very much a cultural thing. Whereas I, and, and maybe, maybe that's changed in the UK, that whole idea of, of house parties. But um, people would come and go in your house all the time, you'd open door um, and maybe that's just the way it was, but um, you know, my parents played music all the time in the house. There was always a, either soul, R and B, reggae music playing. Um, you know, 
I would have friends come in and and if they were there, they would stay for, for dinner. That's kind of just how they were culturally. Mm. But um, they they kind of tell how that the first party they had, the neighbours after a few drinks kind of admitted that when they heard that that we were moving in, the neighbourhood was going downhill as far as they were concerned, and they were all going to move out. You know, so and. and over the years, there were there were run-ins with with neighbours and mainly over you know racist attitudes and name calling or whatever, um, and and fights with with kids in in the street, uh, often racially aggravated um, issues. But in the main, I had a fantastic upbringing. Um, my dad actually um, mentions, I mean. For him, working in a in a large bakery, and that's why we we moved there. Um, I think they decided to move there because they they didn't want to be housing in the city area far away from work and have a commute. And I think they were smart enough to also realise that um, most people were being housed in the poorer parts of of town. Mm. So um, although obviously Hartcliffe is a very working class, one of the so-called roughest parts of, of, of Bristol. Um, we lived right on the edge of the countryside, so it was actually quite a nice environment to grow up in. Mm. Um, and as far as I was concerned, I think it was a smart move from them. Um, it, I think it made life much harder because you, you stood out and you had to deal with it a lot more, but you, you, you became very used to um, being um, being or standing out, you know, whereas you're used to living in a white environment, whereas I know some of my cousins would sometimes struggle going somewhere into the countryside or a village, for instance, where they might just see only white faces because they grew up in a city area and they were surrounded by people that looked like them. So... Mm they would sometimes feel a little bit awkward um, in certain environments. Whereas for us, we've always felt quite comfortable because that's, that's our experience as children. We went to a, a comprehensive school um, that had two and a half, three thousand pupils in it when we, when we started there. And we were the only black kids in the whole school the first couple of years. Mm. Um, so that's definitely an advantage. Yeah. Because you live in a, in a white the predominantly white country you don't want to feel like a uh you know don't want to feel like an alien in in the country that you've chosen to live in and i think growing up in a white environment um prepared us much better for adulthood and the workplace Mm. my dad my dad uh tells uh, one of his stories he likes to recount he's in his 80s now so he does like to recount the same stories over and over (laughs) again but he he um he, he 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 mentions how he was one of the best managers in the factory and they were having problems with the production line down in, I think it was, was it Bournemouth or Plymouth, but anyway, I think it was Plymouth. So they, they sent him off down to Plymouth to, to manage the line, to help with the problems they were having with, with the bread production. And his, his boss, his, the main manager in the, in the bakery in Bristol, said to him quite clearly before he left, if, they get, if you get any shit, if you get any problems, if anyone's rude to you, you just come straight back. And, and that's, 
that's it's kind of telling isn't it it's like if you you know you could recount lots of different incidences where you you have uh, problems because of your your color but to be sent down as a as a as an as a manager to to sort 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 a problem that someone has but your manager know there's a very good chance that you're going to get abused when you mm. turn up there and you're going to mm. have to deal with some shit and dad probably that, that what dad would have gone down and if he had got any shit he would have just dealt with it he right. wouldn't have yeah. he wouldn't have he wouldn't have gone back he would just you know that's just what it is he would have dealt with it in his yeah. own way i mean my, one of my brothers who manages a a, 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 a big store in in bristol um even even recently he was talking to dad and he says he, he learned a lot from how to manage and deal with people in the work environment um from working with my dad when he left school in the bakery and watching how he dealt with with stuff mm. you know so that's the thing i suppose you, you have to learn how to deal with the environment you're in you can't just complain about everything that happens that comes your way otherwise you wouldn't you wouldn't be able to do a job for instance certainly back then uh, and and Gene, even now, my brother, eldest brother, kind of talks about he has to manage people sometimes, even though he's someone's boss. Sometimes he has to manage people's attitudes. Right. Which, you know, is just a sign. <laughs> it's just a sign of how when you when you're when you're black, you just have to function in a certain way and accept certain things. You can't expect everything to work the way it, it, it's supposed to, or be you know your, your working relationship to be how it's supposed to be, um, because it's not reality. Mm. Well, I'll, well, let's come back to that later. But it would be be good to know, kind of, you know, you obviously, you obviously had or experienced a lot of racism when you were growing up in Bristol. What was it like? Oh, actually, yes. First, start off with just telling us how you got into climbing, and then how how it was being, you know, one of the first black British climbers. Yeah. Well. Um, yeah. So I left school in in um, eighty three. Um, mass unemployment back then. Um, Thatcher's golden years, um, and basically, they just, you know, everyone was either signing on the doll. Um, I think a lot of climbers were back then. If you if you registered somewhere in the countryside, you could you could do postal signings, and then you could go to France and you can post your your sign ons and just go just, just spend months climbing. I only did that for two weeks. <laughs> really? <laughs> I did that once. Went to went to Provence. Um, not 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 back then. That was after when I was at, I had a gap between between work and I signed on for a few months. Um, and that's the only time I've only signed on for, for a few month period after the time I left school. But yeah, I did go to Provence and did one postal signing. Nice. I bet there's a lot of climbers who wish they could <laughs> do that now. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's a bit cheeky. But yeah, so I, I went to the careers office, um, went to a couple of interviews, um, which were awful because I wasn't, I, I didn't, I didn't want to do any of the things. I refrigeration engineer was one of the interviews I went to. I don't remember what the other one was. And I just wasn't inspired at all. And then um, the careers advice advisor sent me off to uh, do a, a youth training scheme, which obviously millions of people were signing up for back in, back then. So um, I went off to the address that he gave me, um, and I signed up for a Mode B YTS training scheme. 
Um, and that allowed me to uh, choose something that was um, a project making fiberglass kayaks. Um, and the, the person who was running that project, Hilary Morrow, she was just so inspiring uh, individual that her and I hit it off really well. I mean, the only reason I did the project was I saw her walking across the car park. Um, it, it was the very last day of the selection process. We did decide what sort of you know, made-up project you were going to do, keep the, the employment figures down. And uh, Hillary had, it was days of punk rock. She had a, a leather jacket, bondage jacket, bondage jeans on and, and spiky multicolored <laughs> hair. And I was like, who's that? <laughs> and someone told me who she was and what she was doing. I'm like, yeah, I'll do that project, making fiberglass kayaks. So I got into making fiberglass kayaks. Um, obviously, we'd go kayaking, we'd go caving out on the Mendips. And then um, Hillary suggested that I go to Wales and try out for being a... Um, outdoor activity instructor because I, I seem to take to the kayaking and the, and the caving really naturally. Um, and uh, so, yes, yeah, so I went off and uh, trained as a, as a, an instructor for a season in Pembrokeshire. And uh, my job was to keep their fleet of kayaks on the water. So I was doing kayak repairs um, and training to be a, an outdoor activity instructor. And that's kind of all I've done for a living, short time um, making fiberglass kayaks. And then the rest of my uh, work career has really pretty much just been instructing either kayaking, caving, climbing, you know, mountaineering. And so was climbing one of the other activities and you got into that as well? Yeah. So climbing was obviously one of the things we did. Um, sea cliffs there in Pembrokeshire. Uh, didn't really take to, to it. Immediately, um, I, I was I was already heavily into the, the canoeing and the kayaking, and then um, I think the thing I think it, it clicked for me um, when we started leading. As soon as I learned how to use trad gear, it kind of made sense to me because it was like exciting and dangerous, mm, right, yeah. <laughs> and that's the kind of stuff. <laughs> That was the kind of stuff we did when we were kids. When we, when the environment I grew up in, we just did lots of stupid stuff. We, got, we, we used to go out into the woods and lived on the edge of, edge, of, edge of the sea. And we'd try and get ourselves into trouble. You know, we'd you know, like cut trees down and you'd sit on the wrong side of the branch while someone was sawing it. And then it would, it would break and you'd go crash into the ground as you're holding onto the tree branches. And we'd have bonfires and, and you know, throw fire at each other and all sorts of things and go hunting. You know, jump on jump on wild, on cows and try to ride them and get kicked off. That was the sort of stuff we'd do for dares. So so rock climbing just seemed like, yeah, great. You just get to use this stuff. Put it into these, <laughs> yeah, put it into these cracks, climb up. When you look down, you realize it's all slid down the rope because you've got no <laughs> idea what you're doing. And it's like, okay, I've got to do a better job of that. So, I mean, it was just, it just seemed like such a natural environment for me to play in. I think because I grew up in the countryside, essentially, right on the edge of a, of a major city. So, um, yeah, I just sort of took to to going out weekends, climbing and and surfing and sea kayaking, and uh, and it was brilliant. Um, uh, there's a there's a funny story, isn't there, um, with that lady? It'd be, it'd be funny if you told that. Yeah, yeah. So so basically, I, I kind of had that experience, and then so Hillary moved to North Wales, and she was living in Lamberis, just down the road from the Heights, and I was up there with a. a a training, a sort of instructor training program that I was running with uh, Alan Richardson. And I remember 
uh, sitting in the bar uh, with a group of her friends and, and, and Alan and a, a group of our students. And uh, Hilary decided to ask me, finally, eventually, how I got my criminal record. And I had no idea what she was talking about. So she pressed me and I was like, I'm not so sure why we're having this conversation. And she just had this, this sort of <laughs> horrified look on her face. And mainly because the project she was running was for people on probation. So she was running this very specific project for people that had been in trouble with the police, had a probation officer um, and should have been on probation. But no one asked me that that whole year I was on that project I slipped through the net no one asked some some multiple people along the line must have made assumptions um, I'm not sure where that assumption began um, maybe the way I looked maybe um, my address where I grew up um, anyway I mean I, I got um, thousands of pounds of courses at the Brennan, um, I got £1,500 um, from Pincher Trust for buying kit. Um, and I, I applied for these things, and these things were given to me by the Ukrainian scheme. And I think primarily because I should have been you know, a crim, uh, but I wasn't. So there you go. Sometimes crime pays. <laughs> <laughs> it's quite, it's really quite, there's really some quite interesting aspects to that story, right? Because one is, I mean, it sounds like you don't know for sure, but you could have been, that your good fortune there could have been the result of some quite horrible racial profiling, right? Like they, someone could have gone, well have been, oh, yeah. right, like he's black, therefore he's committed a crime. He must be part of the probation group. <laughs> So I go that way towards the probation group, or maybe not. Yeah. You don't know. Um, but what's interesting is that, and I guess you know, as much racism was going on there, it, it still, it obviously was such a good thing that they had this initiative to take to 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 give people who were criminals, not you. <laughs> you, you, you weren't a criminal. But it, I'm not sure they all did as well as me. But. <laughs> right, okay. It's kind of good, though, in a way that there are those initiatives out there. I mean, I don't know enough about that. Um, but it's, it's kind of good that they were doing training for people who'd, who'd had criminal records, I suppose. I think, I think regardless of the fact that it, it must have been a bit embarrassing because I was touted as this obvious, obvious success story, but oh, wasn't right. really a crim. Um, <laughs> but at the same time, it, it, does, it does prove that these things work. I mean, you know, the, the, the life, the, the, the change in life, I mean, lots of, lots of my friends I went to school with have not ended up in good places. You know, there's a high percentage chance that my background, or certainly not my, certainly not my family background, but certainly where I grew up and the environment I grew up in, um, I've done, I've done pretty well. Um, and those opportunities are lacking in that community. Um, I, I ended up working, um, doing lots of inner city and youth work and long-term unemployed social services, probation work. So that, that's the path that led, that led me down. So I used the outdoors as a vehicle to, um, to help people 
you know, personal growth, um, character building courses, um, and and gives give people you know, team building and give people a better chance of of breaking out of their uh, you know their, their background and and gaining employment. So that's that that kind of youth type social type work that I've done over the years is a direct response to the fact that I felt even though I wasn't on probation, I felt that I. Um, I, I, I received really good training. I received an, a really good opportunity. Um, and also the, the people that I met on the scheme, working on those schemes, are some of the most inspiring people that I've ever met because they really cared about young people and they were using activities in order to inspire people um, to do something different with their lives. And over the years, I've met lots of people I work with, young people I work with, that say that the, the courses that they did changed their lives. Their, their experience of, of the outdoor environment um, have, have, has totally changed their lives. Um, and some of them have gone on to become youth workers. Or mm. I've got one friend in particular who is a qualified doctor in, in UK, Australia, and the US now. So, you know, yeah. when you have people come back to you or bump into you and, and say, yeah, you saved my life, you know, mm. through introducing me to climbing. I mean, you can't, you can't go too far wrong. No. So, yeah, so I think, um, you know, it's, it's an incredible, incredibly powerful vehicle, um, the outdoor experience. And I feel sort of privileged to and lucky to, um, to somehow slip through the net and, and, and got involved in in the whole climbing climbing lifestyle, um, you know. And and like I say, I think a lot of people would have looked at m- at me back then and and probably assumed that it was really difficult for me, being, um, you know, as far as I can tell, the first or one, one of very few black climbers back in the sort of um, mid eighties. But actually, because of where I grew up and it being a very white um, environment, I didn't feel any out of, more out of place in the climbing community than I did um, anywhere else. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and did you experience as much racism within the cl- predominantly white climbing community compared to, you know, Bristol growing up? No, I mean, I, th- I think the climbing community... Um, my my personal experience personal experience in the climate community has been one of incredible positivity i i haven't really i i can say i've definitely experienced less racism within the climate community if any at all than i would in everyday life um and you you, you assume that you are come into contact with people that m- might have racist attitudes and racist views and that happens in society as, as a whole and i was i was brought up with the idea that, um, you know, as a, as a black person, there's something you, some responsibility you carry as a black person. You, you have to, you have to be, you have to put yourself in a position where you help to solve the problem of racism. Everyone you meet that might have a racist attitude, it's or a prejudiced attitude, it's an opportunity to change their mind. Mm, it's quite a burden that though isn't it <laughs> yeah it can it can be seen as that but i mean if if you're 
if you're a normal nice person anyway why would you not just be normal and nice to it it's mm. not it doesn't cost anything to be nice mm. you know it's you know, the world is a much better place if you walk through it with that attitude um, yeah and it, it's easier it's much easier to be yourself and be nice than it is to be um you know aggressive in the situation mm. So what do you think then about like intentions, right? Because, um, you know, racism comes in many different shapes and sizes and forms. And um, so people are quite overtly or intentionally racist. And some people can be racist without quite knowing it. Do you spend a lot of time distinguishing between those types of racism? And how do you kind of like navigate that in the world? For sure. It's like, um, you know, there's a difference between um, prejudice, discrimination and racism. I mean, you know, we all, we, we're all prejudiced, we all prejudge and we can all discriminate. Uh, so if you're prejudiced, you, you've got some, con, some, some preconceived ideas about what someone might be like. Um, and you're, you're prejudging someone based on maybe their sexual orientation or their sex or their religion or their um their race if there is such a thing um and then when you when you meet them if if you discriminate based on those preconceived ideas then you know you're that that's that's being discriminatory you know mm. someone might be prejudiced meet someone and treat them just like they would treat anyone else. So they might have preconceived prejudice mm. ideas, but actually when they meet another human being in a situation, it might be the first time they've met someone. You know, an example I can give is, for instance, um, you know, like I would have a situation where um, I would go to um, someone's house growing up, for instance, and kids, you know, um, either on the way to school or before going out to play in the evening. And I could hear um, someone's parents use racist terms or, or language towards an, an event that might be in the, in the press or the news uh, at the time. So I would be standing in someone's living room hearing their parents say the N-word or, you know, whatever, coon, wog, niggers, you know, these things – heard it all, seen it all. And they, then they'd realise that I'm standing there and they would say something like, oh, well, Trev's okay. So, so they're talking about something in the news about someone that is, is black that's committed some crime, say, for instance. So they're associating that with that person's race. Mm -hmm. But they treat me just like any, any other individual that they meet because mm. I'm the only black person they know. Mm. So, so I'm like, well, yeah, are they, are they racist? They're, you know, or are they just prejudiced? And they're not discriminating against me. They're welcoming me, in, welcoming me into their house. What they're doing is they're looking at people they don't know and they're having problems with what people might be doing based on the color of their skin rather than not 
making that connection that maybe there are lots of people out there like me. Maybe those people are not committing crimes because they're black, but just because they're criminals, you know? Um, and then there's a whole, another issue there about, you know, reporting of crimes back then, certainly in the, in the, the sort of seventies and the early eighties, there was always this situation where there would be color associated to a, a crime story. Mm. if the person was black but if the person was white it would just be a person mm. yeah and that, that obviously had to stop because what you get there is this unfair thing where it's like people just get reinforced as stereotype uh, and that affects the way people view other people mm. and so that of course happens less these days yeah um so yeah i mean and then you know someone if someone's racist then they obviously you're not really going to quite hard to change someone's racist attitudes mm. um, it's interesting if that, if though because like you, you the example you gave like that's definitely racism the the that family that the, you know, the example you described um and that they weren't racist towards you personally but it's weird that you hadn't changed their mind that or you know it's, it's strange that it's almost like they held two contradictory beliefs in their head right Exactly, and that's what I'm saying. It's it's, com- it's complex. It's very complicated. So, this is the thing. I, if you've got racist attitudes because you're ignorant, that's very different from being aware. If if you've been, if you've, if you've suffered taking all this negative information in that was fed to, um, to societies about immig- immigrants. If, if you're affected by that, um, that narrative, mm. are you really racist or are, or are you just ignorant? Have you been manipulated? I think there's a difference. You know, mm. like if you're an intellectual person and you, you honestly believe that you are superior to a so-called other race, then you're an out-and-out racist. And that's what you believe. You're a white supremacist. No one's going to really change your mind or maybe that even they can have their minds changed, perhaps. But if you've never met someone but you've heard a lot of negativity about them, then you're gonna ha- you, you can have those attitudes. But if you meet another human being and you treat them with respect and you treat them normally the way you would anyone else... I find it really hard to say that you're actually a racist. Mm. And, and I know that that would be weird to hear from some people, but I kind of do think there is a difference between ignorance and racism and prejudice and racism. Yeah, I think that's quite, um, I see that in the UK, you know, it's like, there's obviously, I think what you're pointing to there is a bit like a class issue and a kind of a lack of education. Um, I, I guess it's hard, you know, if you've grown up in a family and your parents are racist, you sort of inherit those beliefs, right? Um, and I guess maybe we'll move on to this, but that I guess that's why education is so important to um, ca- counter and criticise potential racism that you're experiencing racist ideas that you might inherit from your parents um and then you just absorb yeah. right 
I mean, come on, hist- hist- history, history shows us that it's, it's not that difficult to manipulate populations, to believe one thing or another. So if you can manipulate people to believe that Jews determined to go to concentration camps and be exterminated or whatever, if you can get people to, to, to if you can demonize people to that level, mm-hmm. then, of you know, and, and in the 30s and 40s, people had a much higher level of education during the, the days of slavery, for instance, there were much more information around then. That's, that's why I think it's important to recognize because it's, it's far too easy just to say that if someone is actually wants to uh, hate and if someone wants to somehow um, punish or, or keep a certain race of people down because they believe that that's their right, you know, that's just horrible. But in my experience, most, most people I meet who would be considered racist these days just have never had the experience of meeting someone to change the narrative that they've been fed. You know, the power of, of advertising is strong and the power of the narrative that's been sold, um, the negativity that's been pushed onto um, white populations, especially, certainly in the UK and especially in, in America as well. You can't blame people for buying into that narrative. You can blame people for not changing their attitudes and their minds when they get further information. When you start living in a multicultural society and you can you have evidence that actually those people are much the same as as you are. But I find it hard to be too judgmental for people when they've been systematically lied to. And that's a system that we've all been living or that we've had, we've inherited from hundreds of years. You know, yeah. there's been a narrative portrayed that, you know, black people are inferior, um, you know, they're savages, um, and they deserve to be treated as a, a subspecies, and it's okay to be to use them as slaves, because that's their place in the world. You know, mm-hmm. if you, most people you meet, and I often say this having conversations with people, most of us do not have horrible experiences in our lives. But you can still have this overall negative feeling about the state of the world. But most people you meet are nice individuals. Mm. Now, what's the, the, the quote I heard the other day? You know, you, you would, there wouldn't be enough time in the day if, if news outlets filled their stories with good things that happened or good deeds that people did every day. So mm. there's this kind of flood of negativity. Um, you know, and I think most people are inherently nice and fair. I don't think most people are, 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 are racist, but I do believe most people can be prejudiced until they have the evidence to, um, to show them otherwise. Mm. And that's certainly been my experience growing up. I mean, I, I've been to lots of places that would be considered incredibly racist. Um, and some of the most racist places that, that, I've been, you know, Australia, for instance, Western Australia, people told me not to go there uh, or, or certainly questioned why I wanted to go to Australia when I was going there, what, in 1992 uh, for the first time um, because they were su- such a racist uh, culture. I never experienced any racism while I was there. 
Um, not once. I mean, I, I had loads of interesting experiences. And, you know, go into a bar and people wanted to buy me drinks um, because they had never heard a black person. Maybe they even maybe never even met a black person. They certainly never expected to be standing at a bar next to a black person that seemed to have a, a Brit, an English a- accent. And because of that, they wanted me to hang out at the bar with them and talk because mm-hmm. they found that interesting. You know, mm-hmm. racist? No, it's, some people would say it's racist. I would say it's just ignorance. You know, mm-hmm. lack of opportunity to, to mix and meet people. And you have mm-hmm. an opportunity there to to open people's eyes and maybe change people's attitudes rather than be insulted by the fact that someone wants to buy you beer and they're shocked that they're standing next to a black man with an English accent rather than a a Caribbean or African accent. Yeah. Um, Easy to choose to be offended by that. Yeah, sort of, I know it's not the same, but it does remind me of kind of being a young woman, young female climate in the 90s and everyone being really shocked when you like lead trad do a trad lead or something at age 11 as a young girl and you don't see many women climbing let alone young women and it's like I could interpret that shock as sexism but in reality it's just they're shocked because they haven't seen anything else um yeah it's just like if you hang out with only slight like middle-aged white men and you see a young girl come up to the crag you are going to be shocked and I'm sure you've experienced that a lot um as one of the few black climbers out there yeah for sure I mean I remember um you know reading reading magazine articles um sort of back in the the uh the 80s mid 80s and you know I I um I was only aware of a couple of other black climbers globally you know um Mike Freeman in, in New York and, and Fred, whose surname escapes me, but in South Africa. And um, those were, it, you were aware that they're out there, but I, ne- I never, it was, it was probably almost a decade before I came across any other black climbers in the UK, um, no. so as far as I'm aware. So, yeah, I mean, I would turn up places and you would get some very odd looks um, looks of surprise, uh, and they were so often obvious. But as far as um, you know, having any negative experiences, that was never something that that kind of came away. I think you know most, even now, most most climbers are fairly colorblind. I think. Um, I mean, when I started climbing, there were no um, indoor climbing walls, so it, it was harder for people in cities to get into the sport. Mm. Um, and. I remember climbing at Bristol, um, Undercover Rock, Bristol Climber Centre. And back then, because it's located in, in the inner, inner city area, I remember having a conversation with a friend of mine while we were standing in the wall. And he was talking about, God, yeah, you're the only black climber. And at this time, I, I, I definitely was not. So this would have been sometime in the um, probably the, the the late nineties, maybe early two thousands. And he was claiming that there still wasn't that many black climbers around. And I and I had to, I, I think I rattled off about five or six people quite quickly that were either black, mixed race, Asian, mm-hmm. Chinese. And he was like, oh yeah, he didn't even consider those people to be black. 
so or, or of an ethnicity in a way that pointed to me being one of the few black or minorities that he knew climbing and i and i just think that it, it's not about somewhere someone's black because it's about whether if she's talking about inclusion you you have minorities entering the sport and he was shocked at the fact that all these people he hadn't noticed that they were not mm-hmm. they wouldn't be considered white on the census yeah so. it's interesting that i think that points to a few things i think one is that um race isn't really a thing if you're a white person um you know unless maybe you're racist but like um and that's a privilege isn't it it's a privilege that only white people really have to think of race as kind of unimportant um because i i don't know i've known you all my life and it is weird how i don't really can i don't think about your race ever you know i think um i remember um dad telling me once about this story I don't actually know if it's true because dad's got lots of funny stories <laughs> how many of them are true but that um someone sent you a postcard and it, it just said on the address the only black guy in Pembroke and it made it to your house yes is that true <laughs> yeah yeah that's true yeah and I used to love that story and, uh, I don't know why but it was one of the few stories that made me go oh yeah Trev's black <laughs> um I think um I remember a similar, similar story. I think it was, yeah, Chris Bimwadi was trying to, he knew I was living in Pembroke and knew I was in the main street. So he went to the news agent and said, I'm looking for this black guy who lives in the main street. I saw, oh, yeah, he lives in 93. So, I mean, it's pretty, yeah, that's the thing. If, you, if you're in that kind of environment, then um, it is a, a, another funny story that I, that I like. Do, you're probably too young to remember, but there was a, celebrity cook on good morning britain uh whatever it was called back then um called rusty lee and she was of caribbean descent big black woman and uh i was i was driving um uh, the van through um through pembroke main street with the kayak trailer on uh one day and she was doing a promo at one of the stores one of the delicatessen and as i drive through Rusty sees me driving this vehicle and it's going quite slow traffic. She's, hello, brother, how you doing? <laughs> and I'm like, wave back, hey, Rusty. And I go into the store like a couple of weeks later and uh, the owner's like, you know, I, I never realized that she was your sister. <laughs> was, I mean, that's, that's sort of... in. The, that's the environment that you can be in. It's like, no, she's not really my sister. It's just a term, a phrase that we use. <laughs> oh, that's funny. Can't be offended. Can't be offended at that, you know. It's um, certainly better than the... Go on. Than what? Than the police coming around your house looking for weapons, you know. Oh, do you want to tell that story? <laughs> yeah, I suppose the two go, two go hand in hand. So, I mean... Um, it's sometimes hard, I think, to, for people to understand. So I've got a list of a few little stories, but to try and explain what it, what it can be like growing up or you know, existing in a, in, a, in a white environment. I mean, so there was this, this shooting in Main Street. It was in, the, it was in the newspaper. So some guys get in a car. One of them's black. Car, tires screech away. Um, and one of them is shooting out of the window. 
So a drive by. This is Pembroke, mine, West Wales. You know, nothing nothing happens in Pembrokeshire much. Um, so the police call round to the house, knock on the door, lodger lets them in. I'm away in Thailand on a climbing trip, and they ask some interesting questions, like you know, uh, they see a picture of a black guy with a gun. Oh, is that him? No, that's not him. Uh, they see. Uh, a replica gun on a mantelpiece. Is that? And they ask, "Is that a gun?" Police, mind you, they should have known that was a gun. You could see it. It was a replica gun. I stole that from film set um, <laughs> that I was working on. And so they're asking these weird questions. And obviously, they realise that I wasn't in the country at the time. So they leave and they say that I can, if when I return, I can get on the station if I want to ask and see what what they they called for. So of course, I returned back from my trip to Thailand. They had, um, in the meantime, there was the, the weekly paper had come out again the following week, and there was another story about the drive-by. So the shop owner on the opposite side of the road, who'd also witnessed this drive-by shooting, had seen some youths jump in a car and, and, and drive away wheels spinning. But he had also noticed that the car had backfired several times as they drove down the main street. So that was the story the following week. So, of course, I, I got back from, um, from my climbing trip and went down the station to, to, to embarrass them a little bit. And one of the reasons I'd gone down to embarrass them a little bit was because I'd been, I'd been stopped by the police probably seven or eight times in the space of six months um, driving through various places. And some of my friends were more annoyed at the fact that I'd been stopped so many times in, in such a short space of time because some of my friends grew up in Pembrokeshire. They lived there all their lives and they'd never had the experience of being stopped by the police. Mm-hmm. So they were kind of like angry about this. And I was like, well, it's just an accepted part of being black. You're going to get stopped more by the police. It's not unusual. It's just what happens. So what we're going to do anything about it. There's no point in you know, and spit in the dummy because you could just be doing that all the time and it, it, life would become hard. So I go down the station and of course uh, I wait for half an hour till the receptionist com- comes back and she asked me if I has, have the, the PC's, um, the police officer's number, which obviously I didn't because I wasn't there when they called around and my lodger didn't take the number. And uh, so the story was, well, if I, they can't find in the system any record of the police coming to my property. So, uh, that was that was that. But what was interesting after that happening, I stopped. I didn't get stopped anymore. Um, and on occasions where I had to interact with the police, it was obvious that they knew who I was. So mm. often uh, it was a roadblock once uh, because of escape escaped criminal from the, the court system. Um, and they pulled me over in my camper van. They were searching people's cars and getting people to open their boots. And I just got, oh, Mr. Messiah, 93 Main Street. Right. Uh, is anyone in, your back, in the back of your camper? And I was like, no, no, I haven't got any passengers. I haven't picked anyone up. And they were like, on you go. So it was, they kind of knew who I was and I would get an easier ride of it. Um, but, you know, if you have a, the right attitude rather than a surly attitude, life can become easier once you go through the system. But if you just butt up against things sometimes, you know that life can become harder if you've got the wrong attitude. So you, it kind of makes you, um, I'm not saying really compliant. I mean, 
you know, in some circumstances, you 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 know your rights, and you might want to um, be insistent that you that you have them. But some of the times, it's about just just making life easier rather than harder for yourself. I've certainly had the experience of telling white passengers in my car to shut up and let me deal with it because we will be on our way much quicker if you shut your mouth. <laughs> it's just this is the way it works. You know, yeah, that is that is really sad, though, isn't it? That you've just accepted racial profiling. Um, do you think that there's that the police department in Pembrokeshire has improved, or or whether that incident with the fake shooting uh, changed their mind about profiling at all? It, you would hope so, wouldn't you? I mean, you you would hope that that. That somewhere down the line someone had a conversation oh yeah we keep stopping this guy and we haven't called him in for anything and we embarrassingly went to his house for a shooting incident that never happened <laughs> i mean you would think you know that the, so. <laughs> people would realize that yes you you can't you, you can't assume that that you know, the only black guy you know is the one that's committing some crime just because some black guy apparently committed a crime that wasn't actually a crime i mean so yeah you like I say, I think the more interaction people have with people, the more you can break barriers down. So I, I, I do think it's important. And like you say, it might be a bit of a of a weight to bear, but I'm not sure how better to change people's attitude other than meeting people and, you know, combating or fighting some of their stereotypical um, ideas or assumptions. Mm. So you you really believe that part of moving past racism is about integration and um... yeah, it's it's integration and understanding that people are very much the same as as the next person. Um, so you know, um, every time you you have an interaction with someone. It's an opportunity potentially to change someone's someone's mind. Um, you know, you, you're going to encounter um, racism on a regular basis. That's 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 true. Um, it, it it does exist, and I think that's what I find fascinating at the moment is what I'm getting from this whole. Um, Black Lives Matter and all the protests and the conversation around slavery and statues and history. And I've had this many times over the years. People do not necessarily understand that racism still exists. Mm. They don't also obviously don't understand what it's like. Yeah. So those are conversations that are necessary in order to move on because if you if you think about it, if you are if you are a minority and you're experiencing you're experiencing racism, life's hard enough as it is mm. without making it harder for yourself. Mm. Like you you're already you're already at a disadvantage. Why do you want to butt up against every negative thing that happens? You're dealing with all the stuff that, that a white person deals with, all those stresses of life. But you have all these opportunities where you can be get bent out of shape over some injustice that's happening to you because of the color of your skin. And that does not 
make your life easier. It makes it harder. You've got to choose your battles. And, some, and, and, and often it's better, well, choose your battles very carefully and very wisely um, and don't make your life miserable. Um, and you have to be accepting, I think, that people do change their minds and do change their attitudes. I think that's what I was saying earlier about my upbringing. My upbringing has proven to me that people's attitudes can change very easily once they know someone. Right. So, for instance, this is the street I grew up in. I've seen my mother have you know, march down the road, knock on neighbor's door and just absolutely have an absolute blazing row with them over some racist incident that happened with their family and 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 and, and our, our family and there were periods growing up in that street where it was just seemed feudal mm. um everyone in that street are close friends as old people they visit each other and they sit and they talk and they laugh about those days right that's that's a sign that you can have those experiences and people don't aren't necessarily aren't necessarily full of hate they are just prejudiced based on the narrative that they've been fed and that mm. narrative was very very strong yeah um, it's the idea isn't it really it's sort of like the ideas have a life of their own and they like infect yeah. people, and it's that yeah. it's not that people are bad people or good people necessarily. It's that they've been kind of infected with a bad idea, and they need other experiences or other ideas to convince them that they're wrong. And that, I guess, is a really slow process. It is um, a slow process. Do you think that this current movement is helping speed up that process? Um, I think it, inevitably it will. Um, and it doesn't mean that it, things aren't going to be more difficult for, for a period of time, perhaps. I think they are difficult at the moment. Um, but it's almost like a necessary process. So I, I'm, I'm, I know I'm not alone in the experiences that I've had growing up. I've got my, my family, my brothers and friends to, to, um, experiences to draw on also i know for a fact that most black people living growing up in the uk will have very similar experiences and many people have just been getting on with their lives and just dealing with stuff and also almost feeling like knowing that things were much harder for past generations mm -hmm. so you don't want to complain because you mm. know things have got better. Mm. But it seems like what we, where we've got to at the moment is it's got to a point where, yes, things have got better. Things are much, much better. But they're still not good enough. They're not, yeah. they're not even close to good enough. It's just, mm. in this day and age, people are just like, you know what? It's just, we don't want to be dealing with this anymore. Yeah. And it's not even that you don't want to be dealing with it. It's, it's that you could deal with a mundane rubbish that you have to deal with on a daily yearly weekly basis whatever but i i have a completely different life 
I have a very comfortable life. I, I, I live, um, I mean, outside of the, the, that kind of living in a city, I live in the countryside, but living in the city where you might come up against being stopped and searched and, and how difficult it can be to be a, a, a black person living in, in, a, in, a, in a white, predominantly white country, being a minority. So I needn't necessarily complain, but there's this, this thing when you are a minority where you, you do feel that when something, when, it, when something like this happens, you want to lend your support however you can to it. Mm. Because as you grow up and you move away from those environments where you might be experiencing racism, you still know that other people are. You still know that other people are dealing with things you might not be dealing anymore, dealing with, and they haven't gone away just because you've changed your life. Um, and the life that, that, that I have, the life that many people have now, many minorities have now, we only have those. We only have those freedoms. We only have the level of the amount of equality that we have because people have fought for that. Mm. People have fought tooth and nail you know, people have, like Rosa Parks, refusing to get on the back of the bus. She wasn't the first person that did that. Mm. But that was the star of, a, a, you know, a, a major leap forward, a, a major spark for the civil rights movement. Mm. Those things, you know, people have put themselves out there. Mm-hmm. So for, for you to sort of have this, for, for, to be a minority and have this comfortable lifestyle and then see these things happening, you know that people are still dealing with racism on a daily basis, pretty much like I did growing up. And, and I still come across these things every now and again. Yeah. So you know, what we're talking about is how difficult it is for a society to overcome the legacy of slavery. A lot of people are getting bent out of shape about oh, there was white slavery. There was more white slaves taken, uh, you know, by the Turkish Ottoman Empire than were shipped from Africa to America, you know, and you can't, um, you can't change history or whitewash history or, or, or erad- eradicate history. And, but no one's trying to do that. So if you have, um, you know, years of, oppression and if you have you know you you have history um black history completely systematically um erased from european history what that does is you have a system where you have a whole race of people that have been sold as as being inferior to make um slavery more palatable so it's not about the fact that there was slavery. It's about the fact that we are still seeing the effects of that now. Mm. So because I keep seeing these, these, these things on social media, wondering why it is that no one's talking about white slavery. You know, no one's talking about white people that get killed or protesting against white people that get killed. I, I saw this the other day, which I, I was horrified by this idea that someone would 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 try and link those poor people who got killed in Reading. Um, no one's protesting those white people who got killed in Reading. Well, it's, a different it's issue. horrible that it, it, they're 
killed by a terrorist or someone committing a terrorist act. People are protesting against people being killed by, by people who are paid to protect and serve. That's a completely different issue. So I, I do think that people are struggling to, um, to understand what is going mm. on at the moment. And it seems like things are getting worse and we're, we're entering this phase of where this might be this kind of uh, race war. But it's just people saying it, that they've had enough. Mm. And all people are asking for is equality. They're not asking for anyone to feel guilty or feel sorry for slavery. What people are asking for is just, just equality. And mm. without it, we're all going to have to deal with these sort of protests and this sort of unrest because the issue is not going to go away until we have more equality. Mm. Yeah. I think, I mean, well, do you sort of pull apart kind of the, the different um, symptoms and effects of racism? So obviously like there's, there's racism that you might experience day to day. Like maybe you're not the person that's picked for the job based on the color of your skin, that kind of racism. And then there's sort of like, the, the legacy of um, racism that's kind of caused certain groups to be poorer. Um, yeah. Do you sort of t- t- do you think it's worth kind of tearing those two different types of racism apart, or you know, one sort of day to day racism, one's kind of the legacy of racism um, as like yeah, separate think- projects, or do you think it's kind of more complicated than that? I think um, they are. I think they can be seen as separate issues. I think and separate projects. I think if you look at um, it, to me, it's almost like if you have like uh, minorities and they're at a, at a disadvantage, it gen- generally at a disadvantage. What you're going to have, they're going to end up being poorer parts of society. So that you could have, for instance. Um, a great proportion of minorities would be um, living in poverty. Mm. You have um, a greater uh, percentage of crime might be committed by poor people. Mm. So if you look at, when you look at statistics, it might seem that minorities might actually perpetrate more crime for how many people are there in, in society uh, mm. than, than, there, than there should be statistically. But statistically poor people will commit certain certain types of crime um so if you if you have well and and the other the other thing you can maybe also take from that is that i i think that it seems to me that a lot of people who might consider to have these racist attitudes or are happy to vocalize as race attitudes are stereotypically kind of that white working class Mm. they are also affected more by racism by um racism what i should say is they're affected more by um the cultural differences so if you for instance try to um create a narrative, whether it's against minorities or black people or Polish or, or, or Eastern Europeans, 
that people are coming over, taking their jobs. Mm. It's the people in poor parts of society that are affected by you that mean, narrative. You mean they're more susceptible to believing in the narrative? They're more likely to care. Right, yeah, like instance, they've, if you, got, they've got less jobs. Yeah, yeah. If, yeah. If, you're, if, you're comfortable, if you're comfortable in white middle class Britain, what do you care if uh, Eastern Europeans are coming over and doing building jobs, picking fruit? Mm. It's not affecting you. Yeah. You know, it's like the whole Brexit uh, issue. So many people turned out on the immigration issue and Eastern Europeans were as much a part of that as minorities mm. but so i mean as long as we have the the gap between the rich and the poor getting wider i think we're going to have these problems yeah yeah it's weird how little people talk about class these days my mum's always moaning about that <laughs> um oh it's, it's huge in, in the uk such a we've such a class issue but we don't we don't tend to talk about it as much um, and yeah, you can see how, um, so as long as there's a disproportionate amount of people from a racial group at the bottom, there's going to be racism and there's going to, it's going to fuel racism and it's also going to, um, yeah, I guess like poverty is just a big part of the equation, right? Yeah. Because if you, so if you, if you're a minority, you're already in the if you're if you're already in the bottom part of of of, uh, of society if you if you financially are, are you know in that poorer bracket you also have a disadvantage that you're fighting against racism and racist attitudes so so you're you're at the bottom and you're mm. and you're one rung down yeah. so you don't have the same opportunity as someone in the same social economic situation as you who's yeah. white. Yeah. You know, an example of that, an example of that would be, my, I was speaking to my brother the other day, you know, and it's just a, a simple frustration that he has is that, so he's a plasterer. Uh, he's been plastering now for well, a number of years. He's got tons of feedback. He's on one of these, these work apps. So right. he, he, he puts himself forward for jobs, um, goes to the, to the, to the job, does a quote, and then you wait to see if you get the job given the job or not well inside these apps what you can do is you can you can you can say yes to the person that comes to do the quote but you mm. can also decline right there's no advantage to declining someone it just tells them that you don't want them doing the job for you right so he's got a hundred percent positive feedback mm. so he knows some people that do the same work as him he, he sees people get jobs that he's quoted for with, without 100% positive feedback and without as mm. much feedback as he has. Mm. The, 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 his white colleagues, his white friends that do, do the same, same work, they don't get declined. Yeah. They just don't get the work. No, no one goes out of their way to press the decline button because it's easier just to pick the person who you want to do the job. Yeah. So yeah I think those sorts of stories are so important to hear because you just don't know about them right and if you're a work, white person you don't I mean um I don't know I, I mean I, I it, it might be good to um 
run through some of the things that you do experience that you you know for sure are um are racist you know or because of your color you know you can't always know for sure and you don't want to associate every thing that happens or every knockback you have not getting a job or not getting a rental property uh, as racism because that's obviously an unhealthy road to be in because obviously white people sometimes don't get everything they, they want either but sometimes it's so obvious mm. that that's that's the case I mean I will do things oh I certainly have done things in the past which my my partner um hates uh you know I, I've when you you get told no a few times um for rental property um I suggest that she goes on her own because she's white. Mm. So you could go, you could go, you could get a yes to the rental um, and they've already committed to it. Whereas if I go, there's more of a chance that the answer to renting that property property might be no. Mm. Um, and we've certainly had the experience where I've been like, yeah, I'm pretty sure that that was a no because uh, of the color of my skin. So mm. a week later, you, you, you phone again to see if that property is for rent and it still is, even mm. though the week before you were told it was taken. So, mm. you know, those things are very easy to, some, sometimes very easy to, to kind of check. Um, and of course, people are entitled to rent their property to whoever they, they feel, but, you know, you know those things, um, those things happen. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think that's... Um... It's important for white people to hear about that because it, and you just as a white person obviously we just don't unless you you know black people and you make an effort to listen to their experiences you just aren't going to be aware of them um, yeah I and mean, i've certainly had conversations at dinner tables you know over the years and and i and i've recognized I've certainly had people actually just disbelieving of some of the things that I've described and it almost feel like someone saying that you're lying or making stuff up because they're so far removed from their experience that mm. they find it actually hard to believe. Mm. Uh, so obviously that's really irritating for you to experience, right? When someone's just like invalidating your experience, disbelieving your experience, but does it also point potentially to the idea that, because obviously as a white person, you can experience other people being racist towards black people, right? Obviously you don't yeah. yourself experience racism, but you can overhear racist comments, etc. And I have experienced some of that, uh, but I really don't experience it often. And I think that's because I'm very much in this bubble of people that I like to hang out with, you know, and I, and I select my friends and I don't have a job where I'm surrounded by by people that I don't select, you know? So I am sort of like in a bubble yeah. of people who share my beliefs. Um, but like, you know, what, what other things do you think we can do? And maybe this is where we can segue into education a bit. Um, you know, given that there's this real movement now, what is it that people can do to, to support this movement in a positive way? Well, I think for me, uh, understanding the depth of the, the, the problem that we have. So you need to, to change the education system. We need to kind of take the whole issue of immigration 
important together with history. So I, I feel, and I've, I've felt over the years, and, I, and, I, and I'm, I, I still feel now that the racist people that exist out there in, in say, let's take you know, Britain, for instance, and from what I'm seeing on social media, they don't understand why they live in a multicultural society. They just don't get it. This whole idea that, oh, you should go back where you came from. Well, even if you weren't born, even my parents weren't born in Britain, they were born as Brit- British mm. because they were born in a British colony. The, 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 mm. the legacy of having a massive empire and the legacy of the slave trade is something we're dealing with now. But if, you don't, if people don't understand it, they're just annoyed at their daily lives being disrupted by this protest or that protest or feeling like people are trying to make them feel guilty for their white privilege and it's not about that so unless unless people actually can understand the issue and i've engaged with a few sort of you know those typical online arguments where it's become apparent that you know people are saying oh this is something that happened hundreds of years ago what's he got to do with us now why don't you just get over it well yeah you'd like to get over it if we had equality Mm. it would be easy to forget about slavery Mm. and move on. But because Mm. you don't, and most people don't understand what modern racism is like, Mm. they don't understand why there's this upheaval and there's this this, this, amount of of energy and and, um, protest and anger building up. Because these things are things that people live with every day and they're tired of it. Mm. So to understand, you know, for people, you know, people are sort of thinking about why don't these people just go back where they want to go, where they came from if they're not happy living in the UK. Well, they weren't, people didn't go to the Caribbean or British colonies, you know, by invitation. They were dragged there. You know, my parents' ancestors were forced to go to the Caribbean. My parents were invited to the UK to come and mm. to fill the, the labour gap mm. in the 50s and 60s. But yet, because there isn't an understanding of how that works historically, it's hard for people to understand that if having an empire is um, a very lucrative thing, for the, all these European nations that had an empire. So historically, we, we now have to live through the fact that hundreds and millions of people were taken out of their natural homes and brought to Europe or brought to the colonies and then invited to their the, 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 the father or motherland. So we live in a multicultural society to tell people that they should go back where they came from. Mm. Is, is, is just ludicrous. So, you know, unless people understand that over the course of hundreds of years, black people have been demonized, they've been, um, people have been fed the narrative that um, black people are uh, inferior to them, that they're superior, um, you know, great black civilizations or African civilizations have been uh, erased from history. You know, you have characters like 
uh, Sir Isaac Newton and you know, Galileo um, writing how, how advanced um, some of the ancient African uh, you know, um, societies were in mathematics and science and medicine and you know, you know, astrology. So you, um, you eradicate that. That has a massive effect, not only on the self-esteem and the mental health of minorities when they grow up in that environment, but also the perception that people have, white people have towards minorities, towards black people when they're growing up. So we've inherited this thing in order to make slavery more palatable. We all have to deal with it. I mean, if, if, as, a, if as a white society, people resist this idea that people should be happy with what they've got, it's not for them to say, because they don't know. They don't really know what it's like to, to have the experience of growing up in a, in a multicultural society or a predominantly white society and be a, a, be a minority. So it's, it's, it's time to listen and educate yourself as to what it is that people are complaining about, not just feeling like you're being asked to feel guilty. And I don't think these, these terms, these things that people are, are pushing, like all, all white people are racist. I mean, they, those things aren't useful because what happens then is people become defensive. And it's not what you want. You want people to engage with the issue, not just become defensive and feel like they're under attack. Mm. Because, you know, white people as a whole should not be under attack and society as a whole should not be under attack. The problem is um, people don't want to keep hearing these stories of, a black person being killed in the street, shot in the back, or or have, having their their you know being then their neck being knelt on until they die in the street, um, because somehow their lives seem to be less worthy than other people's, and that solidarity has to be there because we all understand and know that racism still exists, and we're all still dealing with it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's what individuals can do. And I guess we should maybe just say it would be great that we, if we change the education system as well, right? Because, I mean, I don't remember learning anything in school about slavery or about the British Empire or about the history of black people in Africa um, before the slave trade. Um, so... Yeah, I hope. I hope yeah, one of the, the things of this movement would be that that change that would be great. It's about how you how you teach, um, how you teach it as well. I mean, I've heard, again, I've heard, you know, I've, I've seen people comment that oh, we do teach colonialism, we do teach about the empire uh, in schools, but it's also the context of how you teach it because you know it's getting to understand um, the narrative that has been present in our society for generations. And that generate that those 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 narratives get inherited you know, in, in, in the home. You know, young people are hearing these things from their parents because that's just a narrative that they've they've had from their parents. So the more multicultural we are, the less that these things will be 
um, such a big issue. So it's it's a natural way that these things, um, I guess, have to have to progress. You're not going to things don't happen in a straight line, Um, and I I almost you know feel sorry, but it's I can appreciate how difficult it is to understand where why how, why we are where we are right now because i've i've seen some of my friends post some stuff on facebook and i i almost feel sorry for for them their lack of understanding they're confused because you you can you can be living your life thinking that everything's rosy and and, and you're comfortable and your life's great and then suddenly you realize that apparently there are all these people out there that are having you know not such a good time of it purely because of the color of their skin and and then you're being told that you might be part of the problem you know mm. so it is a, a a very difficult um subject I think. yeah I mean, um, one thing we didn't t- talk about was this sort of the concept of race as is just just the concept of it right and how and i think that when you understand that kind of racism like the history of white racism against black people was wasn't accidental right it was it was something used to allow slavery to condone slavery um and how like in science there is not really much basis for these divisions between races um do you want to talk a bit about that like do you identify as a black person like you know what do you what do you think about no. the concept of races and and should we should we cling on to them? Well, I think it's it's obviously part of the problem, isn't it? I mean, you know, so so race is a social construct and it's it's useful to categorize you know people put people into boxes. We do it all the time with with whatever, whether it's sexual orientation, whether someone's tall or short or fat, whatever. But, you know, even if you look at the UK, we've got the Welsh, we've got Scottish, we've got the Irish, we've got, you know, England. We're very good at trying to separate ourselves out into these different different factions. And we, we almost like it. We like having that, that, that competition again or being part of this tribe, however big it is. And, you know, and we're all kind of, yeah, we're all kind of Scottish or or Welsh or English, you know, until the Olympics, and then we're all British, you know. It's and, <laughs> and race is the same. Race is the same. It's like ridic- it's, it's ridiculous. It's like no, I don't feel, I don't feel particularly black. I mean, it's, I mean, obviously I'm black, but I mean, it makes no difference to me. I mean, I, I've, you know, I mean, not since becoming an adult, it's like I'm I'm a person that happens to have his his heritage from ancestry from Africa somewhere down the line so I'm 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 black I mean but we're just all people you know and it's and you see it so often even like you like you say I mean people need to have a voice against racism you know people will very easily I've heard people complaining about so I keep saying, you know, Eastern Europeans, and I and I've had to say to people, that's that's racist. I mean, isn't it? Is it is it racist? No, it's, it's not because you you don't see Eastern Europeans as a different race, but people will talk about them just in the same way that you talk about someone who's black, mm. 
or supposedly from a different race. But yeah, there's no scientific basis. There's not enough difference in, in one person's DNA to another person's DNA for them to be categorized as a different race. So if it's just a social construct uh, in order to make you know, the abhorrent um, nature of slavery more palatable to the masses, then it's obvious that that was probably a very hard sell. And somehow we've got to, as, as a society, we've got to drag ourselves out of that. So there's no getting away from what's happening now. It was always going to have to happen. And that doesn't mean that we're going to get there in 10 or 15, 20 years or in my lifetime. But what it means is it's a bit of a wake-up call that there's all these problems out there and at some point, these problems need to be addressed. Otherwise, we're going to be dealing with these things periodically. It's not just going to go away. People aren't just going to one day just go, well, okay, fair enough, we tried. We haven't got equality. So, hey, hey-ho, let's just go back to whatever. Um, so, yeah, I don't feel any different than anyone else because my parents taught me that I'm not. You know, my mm. parents were very clear about, you know, someone might be better off than you, my dad would say, but no one's better than you. You know, mm-hmm. there's nothing that makes anyone better than the next person. So, mm-hmm. I mean, and th- this is another question about, you know, can black people be racist? Of course, black people can be racist. I mean, the only, the only relative excuse you can, you can have for, for being a racist if you're black is at least you've had a lifetime of abuse to formulate that opinion mm. that, that yeah. you don't, you, uh, what I say, you know, that sort of racism is more likely going to be a hateful racism rather than a feeling mm. of superiority. Because right, if, yeah. pe- if people are, are, are telling you that they hate you and if people are telling you that you're not as worthwhile, well, it would be a natural human instinct to hate those people. And if most mm. of those people that are telling you that are white, then it's, 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 it's fairly yeah. conceivable that that could be the yeah. end result. Yeah, you but, can't blame them. <laughs> You can't blame someone for not having necessarily the the the, the discipline or the intellect to, to to just go. You know what? No, that's just another person being, you know, being horrible to another person. It's not because they're white, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So and then I've got I've got a few questions I'd like to ask you. Oh yeah, go on. <laughs> so. And these questions are uh, they're a way of just trying to maybe have a, a bit of an understanding of what it can be like, you know, you know living, in a, living as a minority. Um, so, so some of them you might want to ask me some background to the question. Some of them are fairly self, self-evident. But, so first question is, most of them should be no. Has anyone ever dumped you because their family would not like you because of the color of your skin? No. <laughs> so, a girl, I mean, it, it's happened a couple of times. One time, a girlfriend of mine just, just ended the relationship because her family were just too racist. God. And she couldn't deal, she couldn't deal with it. Wow. And it, uh, yeah, there, was, there, was, there was one moment when I was, I was hiding under the kitchen table because her brother had come home and I was in the house. And I was <laughs> comedy moment, and this is one of the, one of these um, these stories that people will go, that never happened. No, and I so I was I was in the middle of the table and I was bunched up, and the tablecloth, and I was like, oh, this is ridiculous. 
because you know, of course it's embarrassing because I don't want to be there. It's just it's the more it's yeah. demeaning. Yeah. You know? But I'm like I'm doing it for her. I don't care. I mean, he could go off on one. But anyway, so that that's the sort of experience yeah. you can have just because you're I'm hiding yeah. under the and and when she managed to get him out of the room, then I nipped into her bedroom, and I had to stay there until he left the house. Right. Wow. <laughs> so yeah. So um. Have you ever walked up to a bar in a pub and the landlord asks you if you're sure you're in the right place? No. No, haven't. No. <laughs> Have you ever been warned that it's not safe to walk around town because you appear to be in a mixed relationship? No. Haven't so, you in yeah, South Africa, right? This was South Africa. So this wasn't all that. It was a couple of years ago now. Um, we were climbing in Waterfall, Waterfall Boven. And because obviously my daughter is mixed race and I was with her, her mother um, and we were in a cafe and the owner was probably doing, a, she probably thought she was doing a very, a very noble thing, just warning us that walking around town as a mixed relationship was not necessarily a safe thing to do so that would have been um 2018 yeah um yeah i mean has anyone ever asked you if you could get hold of some heroin for them no (laughs) (laughs) multiple times you were always a drug dealer right yeah and we, we we tackled this one. I was going to ask you if anyone, if the police has ever called around to your house um, to to see if you have a gun. No, no. no. And but this might say something about the difference between American and UK police. But I've not had any bad interactions with UK police. But I've had the, a gun drawn on me twice by US police. <laughs> <laughs> so I can't imagine what it must be like in the USA to be a minority. You know, yeah. when a, a small blonde girl has a gun drawn on her. But it's because I didn't know the protocol, right? Like, if you're used to police officers not having guns, like, every time... So I got stopped a few times, and they the first thing you do in the UK is you go to get your driving license from the glove box um, yeah. to show the, the police officer that you've got a driving license. That's the first thing you do whenever you're pulled over in the UK. So and I just did that automatically in the States, went to do that, they think you're reaching for a gun. So it's quite crazy, the difference. Um, and so I can't you, imagine. You look like the type. <laughs> yeah. Like kind of, yeah. you know, Bonnie, Bonnie and Clyde, like, you know, <laughs> yeah. go for the gun straight away. No talking. Yeah. I mean, that, that, but that is, that's, that's that, I, I think that's the thing that's hard to determine, to, to get your head around. Like, I'm not even saying that necessarily the world is a much more dangerous place if you're black, but there's just a different thought process that goes on. Like mm. I fought long and hard. In fact, I, 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 I refused to go to South Africa for, very, for a very long time. And the only reason I went was because my daughter, Kira, was, was, um, was studying there, essentially. She was doing like a, a, a ranger safari work. So I went, she was there for a year, so I went to visit while she was there. Um, but sometimes you don't have to consider those things as, as a white mm. person. So like, the States, I, I've wanted to go climbing in the States over the last couple of years, but I haven't been able to, I haven't been able to bring myself to do it. Mm. I haven't been able to bring myself to go 
to Trump's America. Yeah. You know? and, and when you think about going, that, that incident that you just described, for me, that's much more dangerous. Oh, yeah. yeah. I, I actually have to think that if I go to the States, hire a car, go climbing, drive around, I might be in the back of beyond somewhere. If I get pulled over by the police, I have to know what the procedure is because I'm way mm. more likely to get shot than you. I'm not saying I'm paranoid. Yeah. I think I'm, I'm actually that might happen. But it is something that you have to consider in your mind and have a plan for. Mm. And that's just the way it is because you, if, you, if I'd have done what you did, I might yeah. not be here telling the story. Yeah. So that's the, 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 that's the world that we live in. And, yeah. and it's, it's certainly a world that, that I think need, it needs, these things need to be addressed, but it's not, it's not something that's going to happen overnight. No. It's, a, it's definitely a process. Yeah. Um, Did you have any other questions? No, that was all the questions. Easy ones. That was quite a powerful experience, actually. I wonder if that's something that we could all do is is ask ourselves those questions, you know. I, I, th- I think that's the thing about the white privilege, privilege issue. You just have to ask, you just have to try and ask yourself all those questions, the things that, you know, like, do you, you know, ha- ha- have you ever been stopped? Have you ever been stopped and searched? Yeah, I have actually, In yeah. Um, just my car, not, uh, not myself, but yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. So you haven't been stopped and searched no, physically, no. just walking, yeah. I mean, that's yeah. happened, obviously, to me countless times, but especially yeah. when I was growing up in Bristol. Um, yeah. And that's, that's something that just continues to, to happen a greater percentage uh, of the time to uh, minorities. Um, yeah. You know, and, you know, obviously, like I said before, the percentage of times you might get stopped in a vehicle and, and, um, and questioned is obviously mm. higher as well. Um, yeah. And, and it, it can be a battle to, to try not to pin every everything on racism or prejudice everything that, that happened so it's um it's, it's interesting times um and i i've been trying to uh write as much engage as much in social media um around the issue when i, I normally avoid that sort of stuff on social media but with this particular issue this particular time I feel that people, we all need to do what we can do to, to help, um, you know, help people gain a greater understanding, really, um, and maybe move forward with the whole, the whole thing. Because um, it is an opportunity, and it's definitely it's something that I, I didn't think that I would see an event like this in my lifetime. Right. Mm. You know, and, 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 and potentially it could bring around major change. And what I'm hearing from my family and friends who are minorities is yes it's like wow this is like a major um upheaval for everybody it's shaking things up and most people most minorities and most black people are just going it's overdue Mm. and we've all just had enough of just sucking it up and yeah and getting on with our lives you know uh, and it's it's time for for some more major change, and uh, it won't be the end of, of it, but it'll be you know hopefully there'll be some changes made to our institutions, and there'll be more people making more of an effort um, to have more inclusion in all areas of um, of society. But for me, I think that 
the, the, the biggest thing that we all need to realize is that if the more disadvantaged and poor societies that we have in in our countries will continue to deal with these, these issues because racism won't mm. go away you know, it's not going to go away overnight mm. but what we have is is we have people becoming poorer the majority of people becoming poorer and the rich becoming richer and the, as that gap becomes bigger you're going to have more social unrest mm. and, and 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 if we're not going to be you know banging on about race all the time you can you can quite easily just see this as social unrest as much as anything yeah people are complaining about they've got their lives are hard and they've had enough of people making it that little bit harder but that same Mm. can be said for lots of people uh, of any any color white people are having it tough as well um and it's no good just to, to say well i'm white and i've got it tough that doesn't that doesn't make the injustices mm. of racism right just because you've had it tough. Yeah. Those things are still still wrong, you know. Yeah. Um, well, what do you think? Is there anything we missed, or do you think that's a good place to end? No, that's a good place to end it. Um, I think we covered a lot of ground there. I, I think it's a useful. It's definitely a useful conversation to have. As I say, I mean, I'm happy to talk about about it. I mean, I'm not normally happy to talk about. Um, my experiences and, and what I mean, but uh, as far as as experiencing racism or or, or, or the difficulties of life as you, as you grow and as a minority, but um, I think at, at the present time, any any slight nuggets of, of insight that can be gleaned that might just make someone think in a slightly different way or open someone's eyes to what the problem might be, I think is useful. Um, mm-hmm. I think we do all need to be talking more and asking the question um, and doing some research and, and understanding um, you know why why we've got here and how we've got here and, and how to how to move forward you know um, you know whether that's you know volunteering doing some work doing your own research you know talking to people more challenging racism when you see it mm. and then not just minorities either I mean like I say I mean I've found myself challenging uh, you know, prejudice towards, um, you know, Eastern Europeans because it just sounds very much like the, mm. the, the stuff that I was accused of or, or dealing with when I was growing up as a, as a, as a child in, in the city. So, um, yeah. Yeah, well, I thanks. we are where we are, but we are. Yeah, same we are where we are, but there is pe- positive uh, momentum yeah. going on right now. So it's good, great to have you on the podcast and great to to speak to you i really enjoyed uh, cheers hazel yeah maybe um yeah when the world opens up again we might be able to see each other at the crag again sometimes yeah too. yeah maybe in uh, spain somewhere like that yeah cheers mate take cheers. care if you enjoyed this podcast and you're able to please consider supporting us You can make a donation at hazel-finley.com if you head to the podcast page and you'll see at the top uh, support us button. All of the money simply goes to our editor who has been largely donating his time for free. Uh, All of these podcasts podcasts take a lot of time and energy to create so your support is um, much appreciated. Thank you.